If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter? 1 Peter. You can certainly follow along with the insert found in your bulletin as well. Last week, for those of you who are visiting, last week we began a sermon series through this biblical book found in the New Testament near the end of the New Testament. Uh, This is a first century letter uh, written by one of the apostles, one of the apostles that was closest to Jesus when he lived his life here on earth, the apostle Peter, and it's written to churches uh, that are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, the known Roman Empire at that time of, uh, in the history of the world. But these are churches that were young. I mean, after all, the whole, f- the, the whole faith was young. The way, as they called it, was young. As Jews tried to suddenly see Christ in all of their Old Testament law and prophets and writings that they were so familiar with. And then as Gentiles who had so long been excluded from this family of God now are digesting and, uh, and learning with amazement what this means for them and their lives. And so it's, it's a young group of believers trying to figure out what this new life looks like following Jesus who has now ascended into heaven. And they're also a church that is suffering. They're a young church and they're a suffering church. And they're suffering because uh, the Roman Empire uh, and the authorities that be are increasingly seeing them as a threat. And so there's lots of rumors beginning to be spread about what these Christians are doing in secret as they uh, eat the broken body as they drink blood and all kinds of confusion. And so uh, slowly in the first century, these Christians are beginning to feel the fire of persecution in their lives. And so they need instruction in their youth. They need encouragement in the face of persecution and enter uh, Pastor Pete. Uh, Peter, in his pastoral role, writes this letter to them, and he sends this word to uh, these churches in a wide swath of geography uh, that is now basically uh, modern-day Turkey. So that's what we began last week, is opening this letter and kind of unpacking it, which is what we do here at Ascension. We, uh, We seek to teach and preach God's word. You'll see in your insert that verses 3 through 12 are printed. That's going to be actually more than you need this morning. My challenge this week was to figure out uh, by Wednesday at noon, which is when the liturgy is due to Miss Rena, uh, to figure out how, how much of a bite I'm going to take. Because chapter 1 of 1 Pete is kind of like, uh, well, it's like Ephesians 1, if you know your Bible. It's like chocolate mousse. You take one bite and it's so rich, you kind of wonder, should I take another bite or should I just call it a night at that? And so uh, I had Rena print all uh, 12 or all nine verses through verse 12 to keep my options open, but we're actually going to stop at verse 9 this morning. Verses 3 through 9, which is actually not in English, but in Greek, it's one sentence. Verses three through nine is one long sentence. And I was thinking this week, uh, before we read the text, I was thinking about um, 
just what a privilege. And I was talking with a, a peer of mine, another pastor of friend of mine as uh, we were catching up about what a privilege it is to do what we do each week. What a privilege it is to do what we're doing this morning. And what I mean by that is uh, putting myself in the, in the place of these first century believers As they heard this letter, they heard it in the context of their gathering, they heard it orally, probably maybe through Silvanus, who's mentioned later in the letter, this friend of Peter, who we think maybe was the guy who Peter handed the letter. He either scribed the letter, or he uh, was the messenger that took the letter around to these churches. But Silvanus would read this to the church, and then move on to the next church and begin his hike to the next place. And they just, they were left with, oh, what, what did he say? What was, what was the richness there? And here we sit with this word plopped open in our laps, having the, the time and the bandwidth to just really sink our teeth into it and to digest it and to take it home, and to let these words of life ever so slowly as we savor them and as we meditate on them find deep root in our hearts. And especially this first chocolate mousse type chapter, um, it's so good to just slow down and to think about this a little bit. So what a privilege we have. What a beautiful way Peter starts this letter. Um, A letter again last week he reminded us that we were exiles chosen by God, saved by the blood of Jesus, and sanctified by the work of the Spirit whom he left on earth. And now Peter is going to unpack some of that triune theology. And it's theology that is quickly gonna turn into doxology. Theology that will turn into doxology, and that's the way it always should be. Theology, the study of God, the hard things of God are never an end in themselves, but they lead to something. They lead to doxology, to praise. And that's what we're gonna find this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three through nine, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 1 chapter three, 1, verses three through nine, listen as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Horse salve 
It's what we called it around our house, horse salve. As a kid, whenever I had a bump, whenever I had a bruise, whenever I had an irritation, whenever I had a rash, you name it, just about anything, mom said, go put some horse salve on it. And you're thinking, what in the world is horse salve? Well, you can Google it and you can see it. It's this gooey, petroleum-based ointment that comes in this flat tin can. And it seemed to be, at least in my childhood, and I'm sure if my mom ever listens to this recording, she's going to be like, oh, I didn't say that every time. But in my childhood, in my recollection, it seemed like every time something happened, go put some horse salve on it, mom would say. It was good for whatever ailed you. Kind of like the, uh, uh, the Windex in my big fat Greek wedding, if you've seen that. Uh, the, the father carries around Windex, and whenever anybody has a hurt, you know, he, he squirts the Windex on elbows and on all kinds of stuff, thinking that that is kind of an end-all, be-all for whatever ails you. Funny examples. Funny examples of... Balms, B-A-L-M-S. You know what a balm is? Something that brings soothing and comfort. And, And in a world such as ours, we need balms. Of course we do. We get bumps, we get bruises. But we need balms bigger than those that you find in a flat tin can. We need balms for the soul. What if there was such a balm for the soul? Something that in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the bruise, that you could put this on. Wouldn't necessarily cure it, wouldn't necessarily take it away but it would soothe, it would bring relief, it would bring comfort. You see, Peter gives the church such a balm this morning. In one sentence, in one sentence, he gives a reliable, undeniable soother and comforter. There are lots of different angles that we could have attacked this passage with. As I read commentators, as I look at other sermons, lots of different ways to look at this passage. But what kept coming back to me in my study this week was one word. And the word is worship. Worship. See, the way he begins this letter is so striking. We looked at last week's exiles and and this plan of redemption worked out through the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But remember, Peter is writing to a people, a church that he knows is hurting. They're suffering. They're acutely aware, increasingly aware that this is not their home. They're being persecuted for the very faith that he represents. And so Peter begins with, blessed be. Blessed be? It's because Peter wants the church 
And the Holy Spirit wants us to be reminded of one truth, I think, that is an anchor for our hearts from this passage, and it's simply this. Worship is a balm for hearts weighed down. Worship is a balm for hearts weighed down. See, Peter isn't merely giving his readers, his hurting brothers and sisters in the Lord, information to live by, a strategy for better living. He is leading them to worship. He's leading them where his heart has already gone and is. Look at the passage. It begins with worship, verse three. Blessed be, it ends with worship, verse eight. You rejoice with joy inexpressible, and we find worship in the midst of it all, verse six. In this you rejoice. Because worship gets our gaze off of our issues, off of our problems, and onto the one who knows us and knows what we're experiencing better than even we do. And so here, to hearts that are weighed down, to hearts that are experiencing various trials, fiery trials directly related to their faith, Peter brings perspective, and he does so by fixing their gaze on the Lord. And four character traits, four truths about the nature of our God that I want to unpack for just a few minutes. So kids, if you're taking notes, you got that one point, right? Now we're going to go through four other points, sub-points. The God who creates the God who gives, the God who guards, and the God who takes away. First of all, the God who creates. The God who creates, who is worthy of our worship. Peter doesn't bring up God as the first cause in the universe here, does he? It's not in the beginning God created, but he reminds us of what God has caused in us. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now the according to there is the same according to that's found in verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God, the work of the Father is such that because of his mercy alone, because of his desire to not give us what we deserve, he has caused something to happen in us. He has caused new birth in us. He didn't just invite us. He didn't just give us the opportunity to be born again. He made this happen. You had as much to do with your spiritual birth as you had to do with your physical birth. And that's a whole little theological trail that we can argue sometime if you want to argue it. But we're not going to do that this morning. Because of the sovereign pleasure and power of God, he has made you alive in him. He has made you his own child, so much so that the Father is the Lord Jesus. 
The Lord Jesus is now your Father by virtue of your union with him. John, the Apostle John, speaks pointedly of this in John 1. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Okay, well, that sounds like, that's me. I'm I'm, uh, receiving him. I'm believing in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The God who creates. We talked about that last week, so I don't want to belabor that point. But it's what this creation leads to that is really at the heart of the passage. For the God who creates is also the God who gives. And what does he give through his creative work? He gives a living hope. The God who gives living hope ought to be praised. Now hope is a powerful word. You don't have to be a Christian to like the word hope. Even in our day and age, in our culture, remember how powerfully that one word was in the campaign of Barack Obama both his initial presidential campaign as well as his re-election bid, it was hope. And, and who doesn't want hope? Because after all, the opposite of hope is disappointment, and nobody wants to be disappointed. These first century believers that Peter is writing to had reason to despair as a result of the circumstances that were around them, but Peter reminds them that they have hope, a living hope. It's not It's not Obama's hope. And I'm not saying that about his heart. I'm not saying anything about the man. I'm saying it about his words. Listen to his words from his speech. He says, hope is the belief that destiny will not be written for us, but by us, by the men and women who are not content to settle for the world as it is, who have the courage to remake the world as it should be. Inspiring words if you're given a presidential speak, but hope is not what we can make the world be. It's about what has been done in the world, at least biblical hope, at least this kind of transcendent living hope that Peter is speaking to the church about. And so originating in the mercy of the Father, coming through the new birth that he has caused, confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is certain hope, not wishful thinking, but certain living hope. We talked about it some in the discipleship hour. The hope of glory. A hope that this is not all that is or that was intended to be. That that there is a purpose, that everything is heading towards something. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, this historical verified reality, hope is alive. Hope is a person. Hope is sitting at God's right hand. And as Paul said, if if the resurrection didn't happen, we are to be a people most pitied. But as I talk with people who are wrestling with faith, 
either they grew up in the church and they had faith, some form of faith, and they've left it, or they've never come to faith. They've never been a part of a church. One of the things I always like to ask people is, Jesus, you've got to do something with Jesus. Right? As C.S. Lewis said, you've heard me say it a bunch of times, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. And then those 12 followers that followed him that went to their deaths on behalf of this dead teacher, if that's all he was, and they were delusioned as well. But he did rise from the dead, and he did change the world. And all of human history is hinged on his birth. And so we have a living hope. Just think how vivid this was for Peter. Right? I've asked you to put yourselves in the place of, of these first century hearers. Put yourself in the place of, of Peter, bold and brash Peter. Remember his life and story, this adamant denier of Jesus prior to his death. How long those hours in the tomb must have felt like after he had denied his Lord, he had been killed on a Roman cross and buried in a tomb Peter's trying to figure out what in the world. No wonder. Peter was the first to sprint to the tomb when the women said, we met an angel and he is risen. Peter, if anybody needed hope, Peter needed hope. And hope had visited him in the most powerful of ways and he would never ever be the same. And of course, human history records that for us because Peter goes to his death in the same way that the Lord Jesus was executed. And so Peter calls fellow believers to let that living hope be a balm in their circumstances. He rose, he lives, he is coming again. But he doesn't stop there. The God who creates, the God who gives. Now Peter digs deeper into the God who guards. There's a treasure. There's a treasure that doesn't need to be found, it doesn't need to be acquired. It's simply waiting for you. It's waiting for me. It's an inheritance, and as Peter says that word to the Jews in the church, they're thinking inheritance. Oh yeah, that's like the promised land, but the promised land, that wasn't, I mean, that was great, but we we kept giving that back, and it was never secure, and Peter says, no, this is better in contrast to everything that you've ever seen or touched or tasted or smelled or heard of. This inheritance can't be destroyed, will never wear out, will never lessen in any way and it's being guarded. Even you can't screw it up. Even I can't screw it up. What is it? It's your share in God's 
heavenly kingdom. It's a sermon series all, all to itself. New, resurrected, restored, glorified bodies, a new heavens and a new earth in which to reign and to rule and to love and to live an existence, an experience that never experiences fiery trials, an existence that never ends. And at the center of it all, at the heart of it all, is unfettered access to the God who created you for himself. God has set this aside for you, and it's safe. Ephesians 1, Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You were meant and you were made for this, and God is committed to guarding your faith in order that you might attain it. In a few minutes, we're gonna sing that great song which I asked Leandra if we could sing, He Will Hold me fast. He's guarding the inheritance. He's guarding you. And that matters in the fire. That is worth worshiping. But there's one more aspect of God's character which Peter reminds us of in this run-on sentence that he gives us, and that's this, the God who takes away. So we have the God who creates, the God who gives, the God who guards, and now the God who takes away. Verse six, in this, in all of who God is that I have just spoken of and blessed with my own heart, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various Trials. Well, that is a mouthful, that verse. I want you to notice just a few things with me from that verse. First of all, the rejoice that he says in that verse, you see it in your Bibles, it's not a command. He's assuming that joy is a byproduct of a heart that has allowed itself to worship on the God who has done and given all these things, despite the hardships, despite the afflictions. But simultaneous to the joy is the grieving. They're both there at the same time, which is exactly what Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says that despite their hardships, their afflictions, uh, the apostles that is, they lived as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that amazing? And yet God's word has the power to create that in us because God speaks and it is. The second thing I want you to notice is that little phrase, a little while, a little while. Maybe that phrase annoys you a little bit, rubs you the wrong way, kind of sounds like Paul's light and momentary affliction, right? When you're in the dark, when it's been dark for a long, long time, 
and you hear a little while, it's hard for that to be encouraging. I get it. But those three words, a little while, are a reminder that the clock is ticking. Yeah, things, things feel long. I recognize that. Job's season, biblical Job, was long. The season of uncertainty in, in Joseph's life, sold by his brothers, thrown down in a pit in slavery. That, that, whole, that season was long. That one like six months, right? That was long. When Peter tells the church a little while, it may not feel like much comfort, but it is the ticking. If you've seen the movie Dunkirk, there's that constant ticking because time is of the essence and time is running out and is powerful. Throughout the whole movie, there's this ticking. And in all of our lives, in all of our afflictions, in all of our trials, Peter says, the clock is ticking. The clock isn't ticking. With an inheritance looming, with the promises of God undergirding, there is power to look beyond, to push through, to see, to hear the ticking, to see the crack of light at the end of the tunnel. But here's the kicker. The last phrase I want to look at from this one last <clears throat> verse, verse six. If necessary, if necessary. We say, what a ma- wait a minute, you're, you're telling me that there could be a necessity to what I'm experiencing? Peter, you're telling this young church struggling to believe, being persecuted for its faith, that there may be a necessity to what's going on in their lives? And we say yes, quite possibly yes. And of course it reminds us, those of us who have been here, it reminds us of James 1 and that study of James that we did not too long ago where we hear this phrasing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what do we conclude in that passage? I'm sure you remember those sermon points. God tests us to transform us and that grace is sometimes uncomfortable grace. But it is grace because God is making something new, he's making something better, he's refining us as gold, as those more valuable than gold, and so we can worship the God who takes away. Whether it be health, whether it be security, whether it be reputation, whether it be influence, who knows what these first century believers were losing as a result of their stand for Christ. But they can worship God, and worship is a balm for their souls in the midst. The hymn writer of How Firm a Foundation wrote it beautifully. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume 
and thy gold to refine. So let's wrap this up. If, if worship is a balm for hearts that are weighed down, what exactly does this look like? Well, that's a big, that's another sermon series. Let me just give us two things. There's worship in the narrow sense, right? We see something glorious. We behold something glorious. The God who creates, the God who gives, the God who guards, the God who takes away, and we are compelled to give that God praise in some form. We extol, we give thanks, whatever the circumstances we acknowledge, Blessed be the one who is bigger than all of this mess. Blessed be. And so how does that come out in our lives? It comes out in prose. It comes out in poetry. It comes out in visual arts. And often it comes out in our singing. It's no mistake that 400 references to singing exist in the Bible. And 50 direct commands to sing exist in the Bible. And so worship in this sense, worship in audible song, worship in this gathering is comfort. Which is why I tell you sometimes, and I did it this morning, is stop singing and just listen to your brothers and sisters sing and speak God's truth over you. That's part of what Paul was saying to the Ephesian church as they sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. We point each other to the living hope and we encourage one another in this way. But in, of course, there's a, that's the narrow sense of worship, but there's this huge broad sense of worship. But let's take that broad sense of worship and let's just hone it in on mission. Peter says some amazing stuff here near the end of this sentence. He notes that we have not seen Jesus like he did. We've never embraced him with our arms like Peter did. We don't hear a voice when we hear the words of Jesus. We don't hear a voice like Peter does when he hears Jesus' words relate. He can hear Jesus' voice and yet we love him just as Peter loves him, and that doesn't make us, Peter, Peter says that does not make us second-class citizens. But those who, just like Peter, reflect his glory as we focus on our living hope. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what exactly are you saying, Nate? Well, not only are we transformed, but as our worship turns into lives that are obedient, as the world sees our response to trials, where our hope is ultimately found when we lose stuff that the world holds so dear, they too are changed. They in turn bring glory to our Father 
in heaven. And this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of worship. This is the power of gospel living, anchored in the past, secure for the future. This living hope is a balm for hearts who are weighed down, and it's an attraction for those who are in need of comfort, not knowing how to sort out their own mess but looking for an answer. And so what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Let your hearts be stirred by this gospel and this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, Peter. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in Peter's heart and Peter's mind to pen exactly these words that are not just for our brothers and sisters long gone from this earth who originally heard this letter, but these are words of life and peace and comfort for us who sit here this morning in 2019 in Edmonds, Washington. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words, plant them deep in us, that they indeed would be what you intend them to be for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.